Hello and welcome to our University of Strathclyde podcast series, run out of the world-famous School of Education, right in the heart of the beautiful city of Glasgow in Scotland. We bring you a mix of meet and academic interviews, thought pieces, conversations and provocations on all things education, to give you a glimpse into our world-leading education research here at Strathclyde and of course to stimulate your questions and thinking around the meaning, purpose and practice of education in schools, in communities, and of course, in all our lives. Welcome to the Strathclyde School of Education, by now Institute of Education's podcast. I am Maria Ivancheva, and with me today, we have our new colleague, Lea Adamson, who is going to tell us a bit about herself. Welcome, Lea. Hi there. Um, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? What was your education and career trajectory before joining us at the Strathclyde Institute of Education? Sure. Um, so I think people will work out from my accent that I'm originally from Scotland, although it's not as strong as it used to be. Um, and I was living out of Scotland for almost 20 years. Um, but I did all my schooling here. Um, but I think when I finished um, high school was slightly desperate to see a bit more of the world, get a bit further away. Um, and that involved, uh, started off with a year in Germany, um, and then I did an undergraduate history degree at the University of Nottingham. Um, and it was during a kind of year abroad, so I spent six months in the US and then six months in Venice um, through the Erasmus scheme. And it was that six months in Venice that I discovered that you could actually study global development, justice and global development. Um, and so my next step was an MPhil in development studies at the University of Oxford, um, which was really interesting because it had people on the course from all over the world. Um, and then it kind of takes a bit of a slidey way. I, I had a PhD in mind. I knew that's what I wanted to do, but I wasn't exactly sure that I'd hit on the top topic that I wanted yet um, or I was also kind of looking at education and development, but didn't have any teaching experience, didn't have any classroom experience. I wasn't sure how I felt about that. Um, so actually, first I moved to East Africa um, and did some education NGO work. Um, and that kind of led me back into teacher training in the UK before I started my PhD. So it's been a roundabout kind of journey. <laughs> but then I finally finished my part time PhD in I submitted in April 2020, which um, that date was a little bit traumatic to try and manage that. Mm -hmm. um, but then, uh, so finished uh, finished all of that by July um, and moved up to the UK, uh, back up to Scotland, in fact. And then um, I did some postdoc work in the past couple of years before I started at Strathclyde in May this year. Great. So that's interesting. Uh, we have colleagues at our institute who, who come from teachers' background and others more strictly from defined academic background without much teachers' experience outside of the university settlement. But uh, if you also combine both and you seem to be from this category, could you tell us a bit about your transition between an interest in international development and your work as a history teachers, how do you combine these backgrounds? What are the places where they help each other and when, where perhaps there are some positive or negative contradictions between them? Sure. So I think the, the important piece of background to this is that my mother is a teacher. And mm -hmm. so I spent my first kind of 20 years of life absolutely 
insistent I was never going to teach. Okay. Um, <laughs> that didn't work out quite so well. Um, so I think I was working, I got involved in my undergrad with um, uh, an NGO that was setting up to work to support um, schools in Tanzania with books and resources. And so I was involved in that first and was quite, through that, quite critical, I think, of the idea that we could just kind of deliver books that had been made in the UK over to Tanzania and that they would be useful. Um, and through that, we kind of worked with a project to build something that was more about working with students to renovate spaces so they had somewhere to read, somewhere to access resources and move to a model where they... Uh, we bought more books in Tanzania, so they were kind of local and in multiple languages. And I think this kind of leads on to where I, we'll be going, I think, a bit later. But so um, the background in Tanzania is that education from the beginning of secondary is all taught in English. And um, so there's an assumption that resources in English from elsewhere in the world would be useful. Um, but actually, there are many reasons why that's not necessarily the case. Um, and so from kind of being involved in that, I got a sense that I wanted to do research in that area. But because that was going to be education and international development, I really had this feeling that I should have taught and um, that I should be able to stand in a classroom and be able to know a bit more about the dynamics of what teaching and learning looked like. Um, and so when I was kind of doing my master's back in the UK, there was a an opportunity advertised through the Teach First programme, which I know lots of people who are working in Scotland will know something about because it's that thing that happens south of the border that um, they don't necessarily want to cross the border. Um, but for me, it was the perfect opportunity um, to kind of train to teach in a context where there was a salary involved and other people who were really interested in addressing kind of injustices and inequalities in the education system, um, sort of in the UK, but also globally. So I had in my mind initially that I would do two years of teaching. That was what was required. And then I would go and do the PhD. Um, but it turned out I really loved teaching, um, much, to, much to my frustration, um, much to my mum's um, amusement. And I think so um, I continued to teach. I applied to do my PhD part time and I moved to London and took up a part time history teaching role there so that I could combine both. And again, I intended to stop after my first two years of teaching. Um, I went to Tanzania to do the field research for my PhD, which was a full year. Um, and I wasn't going to go back to teaching. I was going to finish it off, write it up full time. Um, but then the head teacher of the school I'd worked in, she was really interested in teachers engaging with research. Mm -hmm. um, and she kind of approached me with, a, with a, an idea that perhaps I would come back and do some history teaching, but also develop the school's research capacity um, and build a professional learning program for teachers built around action research, practitioner research, um, and support students to kind of build their research skills. So it kind of wasn't always the plan to be doing both. Um, but actually now I really, I'm really grateful that I've had those two kind of concurrent experiences I think there hasn't been a huge amount of crossover between the two roles because my research has been in a different context, in a different country, but I think the skills definitely transfer. So my understanding of how research works was very useful in school um, and being able to kind of help people to identify the questions 
and demystify the process. I think when you're working incredibly hard and you're really busy as a teacher, the idea that you have to sit down at the beginning and do a massive literature review is overwhelming and off-putting. So being able to support people with that and how we can kind of think about, well, what's feasible? How do we narrow the question was really useful. Um, and then my teaching experience was also useful in the PhD. So I think in terms of the way I approach research, I'm very interested in young people's agency within education and sort of co-creative um, approaches to research methods. Um, and so I think the confidence that came from having designed activities for young people and kind of worked with them and flexibility um, was really useful. I think there are those kind of, um, there's a tension in that as a teacher, you're used to jumping in and doing stuff and kind of sort of seeing there's a problem, I'll fix it. Here's how, what I can bring to fix it. Um, and as a researcher, you're trying to kind of stand back and understand what is going on, at least in the first instance, even if you do later want to kind of engage with that. So I think there are tensions, but on the whole, I think it's definitely built my confidence as a researcher working in schools. Um, and so I've, I've found them to be very useful. Great. And so you mentioned your research in another country, but from what I understand, you stayed focused on the topic of language learning and teaching in East Africa, but you moved country to do the research. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how, you know, how this happened, how you came to this other setting to do your research and what were the main discoveries that you did through it? Sure. So... I think I have followed the path that many, many others have, where somewhere along the line, they went to do development work, NGO work um, in another context. In my case, it was Tanzania um, and have had a kind of realization, particularly around language, of just how difficult it is. First of all, being surprised, I had no idea that there were schools around the world where children were learning in English or French or Portuguese, even though that wasn't a language they used in their um, everyday settings. Um, I think the history side of me then, then began to kind of recognise the where that comes from, the colonial kind of origin of that and the kind of issues with power that come with that. Um, and so kind of all of that surprise, confusion, I was kind of trying to work that out. But then also then in the NGO work that I was doing, I was working alongside young people. We were painting, we were organizing, and they were telling me on the one hand, this makes our lives incredibly difficult. They were telling me all the challenges that were involved in using English. But on the other hand, they were also saying, but this is really what we want. We wouldn't want anything to change. And I found it very difficult to kind of reconcile those but at the same time, knew it wasn't my place to show up and say, well, it shouldn't be like this. So I kind of felt that um, a PhD in particular, because of the length of time it would allow me to spend, but certainly a kind of in-depth research would help me to understand where these two different sides were in tension or whether we could kind of understand why it was that people would really still value learning in English, even though they could see it was making things much more difficult. Um, and so I sort of went back, I've been back and forth in different roles to um, Tanzania for, altogether I've spent about four years out there. Um, and then 
but I've also done some work in Kenya, Uganda, um, and I've worked on a project since um, remotely. I haven't been there, but remotely with researchers in Rwanda. Kind of so I've kind of a view overview of language um, in education in East Africa. Um, and I think there's a number of things that I learned from doing the kind of in in depth length of time. So I spent all together in school, I spent eight months, um, I was doing two days a week in one school, three days a week in the other school. Um, and But all together, I spent quite a lot longer there because I did a lot of work to learn um, Swahili as well um, before I went out into the field. So I think lots of the research about language um, in schools is focused on the challenge of communication. And the fact that teachers and students were struggling to ask questions, answer questions, understand what was in the textbooks, be able to um, respond in exams. But I learned that there's an awful lot more going on than that. So there's also in the literature lots about the aspirations that come with English, which um, was quite well written about and absolutely mirrored in, in the students' aspirations that I was working with. But there was much less written about how the requirement to use a language that you're not familiar with affects the socio-emotional space of learning. Um, students talked a lot, a lot about fear and um, being afraid to speak and make mistakes and um, being afraid to make mistakes and then be physically punished for that, which was also happening a lot. Um, but more being afraid to that they would be laughed at by their peers um, and a real sense of shame that came with that for um, not being good enough. So the, the system assumes that by the time you reach secondary school, your English should be good enough to be able to use it as the only language of instruction, language of learning and teaching. And that's just not the case. Um, particularly for students in rural areas who by the time they get to secondary school, it may be their third or fourth language they may only speak their home language at home and then they arrived in primary school and then the language of teaching was Kiswahili and then they moved and it changed to English so there's a, a sense in the system that it's the student's fault if they don't speak English well enough to use it as the as the main language in secondary education and that's kind of internalized and I think the the discourses around neoliberal education as well lead to students kind of thinking that it's it's through their own efforts that they'll succeed and it's their own fault if they're not trying hard enough they're not managing to kind of avoid and um, they call it distractions and um, and so that that kind of bringing all those things together I think that kind of broader impact um, has been really important particularly from my um, PhD work and then moving on what I've done since connecting that also with understandings of the fact that it's not just the language challenge in the classroom, but that intersects with other inequalities that students experience, whether it's um, socioeconomic inequalities or gender or sort of rurality, other things that are going on. So that some students are carrying a much heavier burden um, of challenge and how they have to, what they have to manage to do when they're interacting with the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you connect this work on social emotional impact of English only in schools in East Africa um, to a broader agenda of global education justice and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which we speak a lot about these days. But can you elaborate, you know, how that broader agenda, which sometimes sounds quite abstract, 
actually trickles through, you know, connects to experiences on the ground? Yeah, so I think there's, in the kind of area of language and schooling, um, there's almost two levels that the work is happening at. There is some work that's going on, um, and there's quite a bit going on in Tanzania now and lots in South Africa, looking at how you develop multilingual strategies for teaching and learning in the classroom. Um, I'm less involved in that at the moment, but more in the kind of space where you're trying to build and diversify the arguments for changes to policy because even the multilingual work that's being done is having to be done within the kind of limits of what the current policy is which requires in many contexts assessment in English or another unfamiliar language and and so I think what I've been working on is trying to sort of strengthen and build the theoretical argument for this as well and linking that to the data from the classroom. There's a criticism um, within the language literature that it's under theorized um, and that makes it difficult to kind of build evidence across different contexts to create this kind of critical mass that might be able to shift things. I think it's also language is often dismissed as too complicated to get involved in which is it is undoubtedly com complicated because each different country has got its own dynamics of um, what role different languages play. And some countries have got four or five languages that we're talking about. Others have got hundreds. Others may even kind of be bringing together many hundreds of languages. And so trying to work out the historical relationships between different languages, all of these things are in play and influence what choices you might make at policy level for different countries. But because of that complexity, language tends to then be absent from things like the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda. So when we're talking about SDG 4 and we're talking about um, quality, equitable education, there's very little in there. So if you go right down into the indicators, there is an indicator that asks what language schooling is being done in, but it's an optional indicator. So there's nothing in there that expresses a kind of statement about students having access to a familiar language to learn in or really questions to what extent learning can be equitable if students are having to access it through other languages and what that means both on a kind of classroom level where you've got differences in your group of students sitting in front of you, but also on a global level, what that means for kind of global educational justice we place a lot of responsibility on education to be able to carry transformation in a number of different areas. But I think what a number of us are trying to kind of add into that and kind of raise voices for the fact that that will always be limited and that, that goal is being undermined by the fact that so many students are having to do this through a language that they find challenging and difficult and that isn't reflected in the spaces that they engage in in daily life. So where they're engaging with other issues of environmental sustainability and, and peace and these kinds of kind of other parts of the development goal agenda, they're having to do it in a different language to the one they then move into the classroom. So then the role of the curriculum within the classroom is limited because we've got this disconnect between schooling and um, kind of wider. So I think there's there's been a real stubbornness for policy to change. And so I think there's a number of us trying different angles to try and kind of say, 
we really have to engage with this now. We have to address it. We have to bring it into the center of the argument um, because at the moment it's undermining all the aspirations that we have. What is your angle? And what's the point in an ideal world that um, should be? I mean, again, it's complicated, um, but I think it's probably going to have to be a multilingual approach because we do have contexts where it's not obvious which language that you would choose, but there has to be um, a, a big shift, I think, in terms of public understanding that multilingualism is not a problem. So there's a real sense in many countries that the use of a familiar language in the classroom somehow undermines the goal to learn English. Um, and the research doesn't back that up. <laughs> so I think sort of challenging those or opening kind of public discussions um, uh, about the value of multilingualism, allowing that to be celebrated, that we've got millions of children in the world who have multiple languages, um, but at the moment that's being positioned as a problem and allowing teachers then to talk about how they use different languages rather than cover it up because they feel that they're doing something that shouldn't be seen while they're trying to help their students. So I think it's probably going to be a multilingual approach, but we have to talk about it, I think. So. Mm -hmm. And um... You also apply the capability approach. Would you please tell us and our listeners a bit about it, you know, and how you apply its principles in first in classroom based research and then possibly in your teaching as well? Sure. So I think lots of people will have, lots of researchers will have a kind of story of their aha moment, that, that kind of moment when you were trying to understand something and then you read about something or were introduced to something to just made sense. Um, and I think the capability approach was that for me when I was doing development studies. Um, and so the capability approach comes from a number of different places and is often associated with the work of Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum. Um, but there's a number of people who have kind of added to it and defined it and shaped it um, to the way that it's currently used. And it's used in a huge range of disciplines. But it basically says that we can't just measure well-being in terms of economic output or, you know, income. Um, and we also can't just measure well-being in terms of how happy someone says that they are, because there are lots of sub subjective issues with measuring that. But instead, we should look at to what extent does someone have the real opportunities, the capabilities to do the things that they value and to be the things that they value. And it is on purpose slightly vague because Amartya Sen in particular insisted that um, and insists that we we have to give people the space to define, to deliberate, to discuss what it is that they value. Um, but other people like Martha Nussbaum have built it much more into, brought other theories into play to bring it more into a theory of justice where there are kind of lists of, we think these are kind of the central capabilities that everyone has um, a right to access. So within that, there's a, lots and lots of ways that different people have done this and people have brought different theories into their own um, version. But I think this kind of central idea that we can kind of talk to people or and draw on, not just talk to people, but also draw on the bodies of literature um, to kind of define what it is that is valuable, the, the beings and doings that are valuable in certain contexts. 
Um, and I think within the language space, that's been really important because it helps you to bring together not just the technical, I need to be able to understand what I'm learning, I need to be able to write about it, I need to be able to pass the exam, but also allows us to bring in the future aspirations. I want to be able to be secure. I want to have a sort of um, access to a job that will allow me some financial security. I want to have um, opportunities to go beyond my town or village. I want to have um, trusting relationships free from violence. You know, you can bring all these other things and connect them um, to how people view them and connect them to language and whether it's language that's the key thing or whether there's something else that could bring that in. So it, it challenges this issue of it must be English that is the language being used all the time um, and allows us to say, well, actually, how else could we get to some of these aspirations? How can we support these capabilities? And one of them may be speaking really good English, but perhaps that can be done um, through having really good English teaching as a subject rather than it being the language that's used for kind of all subjects. Um, and so I, I find it a very useful way of thinking about what is it that we want people to be able to do in any kind of space. So whether it's um, my language work or whether it's um, other work teaching and kind of thinking about, well, what would the capability of belonging look like here? What would what would we need to bring into the curriculum? What would we need to bring into the way we all speak to each other um, for us to feel like we had kind of the capability of feeling like our own experiences were valued um, and that we belonged in this space. So um, I'm, it's always at the back of my mind. And I think I irritate people sometimes um, when they're talking to me about something. And I say, well, if, if we thought about that in terms of capabilities, um, and I think it's become a big part of um, how I think and see the world. Um, and so it does shape um, kind of everything, I guess, I, that I do. Um, but it's also got lots of crossovers between lots of people work across capabilities and rights frameworks um, and around kind of capabilities and ideas of different forms of social justice. Um, so, yeah, it's increasingly influential. It's been used a lot in education, but also across lots of domains. So you're back in Scotland. How do you connect this approach and the work that you did in this Africa to the educational landscape here, you know, what are the useful comparisons, contrasts that you find, you know, interesting, instructive? So I think I'm still working on it. Um, I think one thing that I definitely saw, I was still in the classroom teaching in London in 2020 until December. And so during that time, that was the murder of George Floyd. And I was working with young people as a history teacher, as they were trying to process reactions, responses, and raising their voices and saying, we want to talk about race in school. We want to talk about belonging. We want to talk about exclusion. And I think there, it was very useful. I managed to use capabilities, in fact, to be able to talk to teachers. I did a kind of thematic analysis of students' responses and be able to talk to teachers about the spaces that we're, we were creating and how we could kind of respond and change to that. And I think I've been very interested in thinking for the future about the role of language in that in the UK and in Scotland. So we perhaps traditionally would never have questioned um, 
English as the medium of instruction, although interestingly in Scotland, we've also got kind of Gaelic medium instruction as well, although not when I was growing up. So that's, you know, things are things are changing. But we've also got a, a growing diversity in the student population. And so the, create thinking about where does language fit into that? Where are students' um, experiences, knowledges, understandings being excluded by the fact that there's no space in schooling for the languages that they have brought with them from somewhere else or that they're kind of using at home? Because um, I think even like the one plus two language policy is very focused on modern foreign languages and making sure that people are learning um, languages. But then we're talking about things like German, French, Spanish, um, maybe Mandarin. But lots of the children in the classrooms might bring cl languages from all over the world with them and sort of where's the space for that? And I think on a micro level, teachers are trying to respond to that. But I'm quite interested with my history hat on of, well, where could ling language be brought into teaching about different historical concepts and ideas from around the world? Um, and kind of supporting as well the anxiety that comes with that. If you give up space for, to something that you might not understand because it's in a language as a teacher that you don't understand, how do we manage that with our kind of sense of control um, kind of sense of sense of who we are and what our role is in the classroom. So I think I'm playing with ideas for um, a school-based participatory project um, that might look at the role of language in students' valued capabilities, and particularly interested in things like belonging, but also epistemic justice and making sure that um, all aspects of ourselves can be recognised and valued in a learning space. Great. And last question, you know, coming to an end, but beyond that one, are there other projects that you're now developing, working on? And, you know, how do they connect to your being present here at the Strathclyde Institute of Education? Sure. So I am currently working on developing a project with colleagues in Tanzania and Kenya to look at language and capabilities in higher education building on all these ideas about the fact that language, the kind of exclusion of other languages from the classroom excludes other knowledges, other experiences, and makes it difficult for students to connect what they're learning to broader society and engagement with society. And um, my Tanzanian colleague, we've met at a conference several years ago now, but he contacted me and said, I think we should write a paper about language and dehumanization. And that's kind of grown into a bigger project now um, that we're <laughs> kind of working on putting together. And I think that's, it's very interesting because here at Strathclyde, one of the big modules I've been teaching on since I got here was the um, globalization module as part of the MSc in education studies. And so many of those students are from sub-Saharan Africa or from other kind of post-colonial contexts where they would have done their schooling and, and university education in English. And so understanding and being able to see where there might be um, kind of similarities of the ideas across the spaces and um, both from universities in Africa and what we might be able to um bear in mind or kind of create build into the courses um here at Strathclyde and um, and so trying to 
I think one of the things I would really love to do with that course going forward is to use some of the seminar space to invite students to bring more of their experiences, more of their understandings of what education is to them um, into those kind of classroom discussions. I think we did certainly did some of that, but I would like to really find ways and forward plan for opportunities to make sure that those come to the center of the conversations. Because I think the more I've spoken to individual students, the more I've learned about just how interesting, but also creative many of them have been in their kind of professional teaching experience um, and how that also differs. So a number of students who might come from the same country have actually got very, very different experiences of what education has meant for them. So yeah, at the back of my head are always all these ideas um, I'm trying to think about how we can really make those conversations and those learning experiences as positive um, and as kind of inclusive for our very diverse group of students um, from different places, different kind of experiences within those places as we possibly can. So I think that's very much on my mind for the next year and something I'd really like to bring to the forefront of what I'm doing. Great. Thank you so much. And that's us with Leila Adamson and the Strathclyde Institute of Education podcast. Thank you for listening in to our Strathclyde Education podcast series. We'll be back soon with another episode.